when someone becomes famous, the town or city where they grew up naturally wants to be identified with them, uh, to share in some of that fame. For example, as you enter St. Albans, you may, you will, see a sign letting you know that Randy Barnes grew up there. And that was a big deal in 1996 uh, at the Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, when Randy won gold medal in the shot put event. Probably less significant a couple years later when he was banned from the sport for, for doping. But uh, you know, saying that out loud, regardless of his future, doesn't really seem like as much of a big deal 25 years later. I mean, like half of you weren't even born in 1996, and shot put isn't the most significant event that we first think about with the Olympics, but it was a big deal to St. Albans. Still is, because the sign's still there. Uh, and that, that's true, because eventually the glory of most heroes does fade, uh, and even if not, the borrowed glory of their hometowns definitely fades. Uh, so it was 2,000 years ago with a small town in Judah, about five miles south of the important capital city of Jerusalem, uh, this small town named House of Bread or Bethlehem, forever the town where King David was from, forever for overshadowed by the city that King David had conquered and rebuilt, which also bore his name. Kind of reminds me of... Uh, if you even if you drive around the United States and the Midwest, you might have the question of where exactly was Abraham Lincoln from? Because there's like, what, three or four states that all claim Lincoln. Uh, and so you have Bethlehem, the city of David, and then it's like, but then Jerusalem is also the city of David. Clearly more significant. You know, across the centuries covered uh, in the Old Testament, Bethlehem remained as small and insignificant as it had been when Jesse's youngest son, David, was anointed there to be king over God's people. In fact, it might have been forgotten forever, if not for one prophecy about the Messiah, God's promised king, tucked into the book of the prophet Malachi. It reads this way, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is a geographic designation, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient times, ancient days. And then later in that passage, a verse later, it says, and he, this promised one will be born, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now... He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. In his gospel account, Luke devotes 21 verses to the story of Jesus' birth, why Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, what happened when they got there. Matthew goes about it uh, very differently. Matthew chapter 2 this morning, we'll go through this in sections, starting verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 2, you can turn, turn there and follow along with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Matthew isn't concerned with how they got there uh, or where they came from, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. His focus is only on where 
Jesus was born. As with the other sections in these two chapters, Matthew 1 and 2, that we have been covering, and Lord willing, we'll we'll conclude next week, uh, this is because Matthew's main goal is not just to give biographical information, but to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. And so he wants passages to attach to, and that's what he's doing in this section. As I mentioned, Bethlehem was a small town about five miles south of Jerusalem in the land originally given to the tribe of Judah. At this time, there was a king ruling over Israel, but unquestionably, that king, who also wasn't Jewish, uh, was under the Roman Empire. So a king, but, but kind of a puppet king right? It's like he could kind of give himself whatever title he wanted, uh, but there was only one emperor, and it it wasn't Herod. Uh, It was Caesar Augustus at this time. Herod the king is how he's referred to in this passage. He's also referred to as Herod the Great, Uh, probably gave himself that title. Uh, It was this Herod who had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, one Herod's temple it was called, Uh, did that for the worship of God in addition to other significant building projects. Uh, So there was some greatness to what he did in the land. Uh, However, um, he wasn't really that great of a guy. As he got older, he got increasingly paranoid about maintaining his rule. Uh, So he had two of his sons and also his favorite wife murdered. I don't know why you would call that your favorite wife. Um, I'd hate to have been his least favorite wife. Um, I had hate to be his wife at all, really, any, any character of that. But he, he had these potential rivals murdered so they couldn't usurp the throne from him. Uh, I don't remember if uh, I didn't chase down details on this from other ancient records and such, but I think he also uh, had a plan in place to have executed a number of his counselors uh, on the day of his death so, I don't know, so he's missed more or so that chaos would reign. I mean, it was just, he was that kind of paranoid, murderous ruler. And so that's who Herod the king is that we find addressed in this passage in the days of Herod the king, Herod the great. And we meet another group of characters called the wise men. And so we want to know who are these wise men? Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and then what they said. Uh, well, in 1857, John H. Hopkins famously wrote of them, we three kings of Orient are. And I only have a few points of disagreement with him. Uh, it doesn't say that there were three of them. Uh, they weren't kings and they weren't really quite so far as the Orient. So maybe this isn't the best song to go about, but it's okay. There's reasons why people have said this, and historically they have, just the text doesn't say it so. Perhaps you've heard them called magi. Yes? Common designation for that. Uh, If you've always thought that the term sounded a lot like magician, uh, you're right, because those words are borrowed from each other. Among some ancient peoples, like the Medes and the Persians, that we talk about at different times, uh, playing a role in the history of God's people, the magi in those nations were wise men or seers. A number of songs today called them sages, having to do with wisdom. Uh, These wise men or seers were were those who would interpret dreams that would take place. In the book of Daniel, uh, these men served the Babylonian kings in this way, interpreting his dreams for them. Uh, But when they could not tell Nebuchadnezzar both what his dream was and what its interpretation was, he was going to kill all of them, 
But in the context of that, God revealed that information to Daniel. Here is what his dream was, and here's what it meant. Uh, These magicians, magi, sages, they also used astrology. Now, not astronomy, right? What is happening in the sky? Astrology, seeing what's happening in the stars and the sky and the movement of planets and using that to try to uh, interpret and predict future events. So they were interpreting the night sky. We could really kind of go to uh, horoscope type thinking with this, like what's happening in those that's, that's telling us something. And they would use those type of means to predict the future or to attempt to predict the future. Uh, these particular magi or wise men would have been from Babylon or Persia. Uh, and apparently they also had access to the Hebrew scriptures, which is really interesting. Uh, because it wasn't like the star, whatever it was, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it's not like it was a J-E-W-S, right? Or, you know, it said, it said Jew uh, in the sky, right? So they were like, why did they go to Jerusalem? Why was this particular, whatever it was, whatever the star was, why did it draw them there at this time? Um, and I think that the safest bet is that they had access to the promises and prophecies of Scripture uh, and, and used kind of this, this pagan means of astrology uh, to see fulfillment of something that was happening in Scripture, which is interesting. Where did this come from? Well, a lot of people, and I would agree with this, some think that this might have been a lingering influence from Daniel as he served as a godly wise man in both of those empires. Uh, they wouldn't have merely looked at the stars, like I said, and thought a new king had been born to the Jewish people. Instead, as they were students of Old Testament prophecies and a number of other religious books, they would have been looking to the night sky for a sign that a prophecy had been fulfilled, which would raise the question, what prophecy? Why would a star show that? Uh, And this may not be the case, but I think that a lot of people have looked to one particular passage Uh, what were they considering? A passage from the law, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, uh, which is a prophecy by uh, Balaam. Uh, We could talk about Balaam and his donkey. Uh, We could hear from Balaam's donkey, but uh, this is the prophecy that he gives as he speaks a blessing instead of a cursing over God's people. And in Numbers 24, verse 17, he said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So perhaps it was this prophecy in mind, drawing a connection between a number of prophecies and different images used to communicate that God's promised king was going to come. Taking this, oh, and it's going to be, there's something about a star in this. Perhaps this is what they're thinking. Uh, But when this star rose, maybe with this prophecy and other prophecies in mind, Uh, These wise men packed up and they headed to Israel and its capital, Jerusalem, to worship him or to pay him homage. So who are the wise men kind of raises another question, which is, what was this star? And people who know what they're talking about, uh, and there aren't any of those people necessarily on the stage today, uh, but they've presented a few options as to what the star was. So I'll communicate that to you. It could have been an appearance of what we now call Halley's Comet. Uh, It appeared around what we would call 11 BC, if I remember the timing, which is a little bit too early. So this is unlikely, okay? But it could be that it was a comet. They're like, oh, wow, that's a significant thing. We need to go see this as, uh, to see this king that has been born. It could be uh, a planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn 
that took place in October and November of 7 BC. Uh, so we're closer date-wise that works. So additional shining things and one particular constellation and people are like, that happened then? Uh, that was unique? That would have got their attention. Perhaps. It could also have just been a, a supernova, the explosion of a star, but there's no way for us to prove or deny that. Uh, also, in the biblical account, the star seems to appear and then disappear and then appear again. Uh, and that would not have been the case if this the star exploded, they see the brightness in the sky, uh, and then it fades, then it like comes back again. That doesn't really seem to be the case. But each of these, Halley's Comet, Planetary Conjunction, a Supernova, each of these would fall under what we could call a providential event. Uh, God using an ordinary astrological event for an extraordinary purpose, right? To announce his son. It wasn't accidental. He, he did this. And he could have caused planets or a comet or another type of star. He could have used what was, again, in the ordinary sequence of things uh, to bring about this announcement. Um, that's entirely possible. Don't have a problem with that. I just don't think it's the most likely event. And it's certainly not necessary that God use one of those other type of things. So uh, what I think is most likely is that this just was a purely supernatural event. Not, not just a comet, not planets happening to align and shine, not necessarily a supernova, but, but God creating something special in the night sky that led these pagan Gentile astrologers to travel to Jerusalem in search of a baby who is the new Jewish king. Uh, of course, you know, it's easy to say that because that's impossible to prove and it's impossible to deny. Right? Granted, so there's no uh, astronomical, right? Not the, what does Pisces say will happen to my love life kind of nonsense. Uh, but even astronomy, tracking aspects of that in the ordinary, you can't prove this. Um, we can't deny it. This is like, oh, that's an easy out. It's like, oh, that's not what we're trying to do. It could be one of those other things. But like we talked about last week with the conception of the Holy Spirit, uh, with the birth of a virgin, it's like God acts outside of natural events just as easily as he acts inside of natural events. So something happened and it caught their attention. God's word is, is adequate for such things. If it says there was a star, uh, it could have just as easily been God creating something unique and spectacular to catch their attention, draw them to those things. We don't really need to know what it was. We just need to know that it was uh, because God's word says that a star rose and that these wise men followed it to Israel to find the Messiah. Kings live in palaces. Palaces are found in capital cities. Uh, and along with those kings, their heirs, uh, their children, they do that as well. They live in spectacular places. So it's entirely fitting that these wise men heading in the direction of Israel would have journeyed to Jerusalem, the capital city, to find the new baby king. But when they arrive, uh, they don't meet a baby king. They meet an adult king. Herod, who was unaware of a rival having been born. Matthew tells us in verse 3, when Herod the king heard that there was a potential rival, he was troubled, uh, and all Jerusalem with him. Troubled is, is a mild way to, to translate that. He's, he's shook up. He's, um, he's anxious about this. This is a problem. One author put, I mean, thinking about how Herod treated you know, his favorite wife and his, his sons, uh, you can imagine how everybody else would feel. So one author wrote, uh, when Herod the king, uh, when Herod the great trembled, 
the whole city shook. Uh, what's he going to do? And we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Remembering he was a paranoid maniac who'd already murdered a number of different people. Herod immediately sought more information about this event, and he assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people, probably like two different groups, potentially uh, groups that were in opposition to each other, in disagreement about things. And so he kind of is he's playing the field a little bit, trying to draw information from different groups to try to get the right answer of these things. And he asks where the Christ uh, was to be born. Um, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, God's promised king. I um, don't want to forget what that, that term, that title means. Both of these titles speaking about the one promised to come and save God's people. A Jewish king from Abraham, from David, that would come and the promises would be fulfilled in him and then through him to God's people. Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we continue the story and we see the prophet's direction. Where was the Christ to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. For the priests and the scribes, this was an easy question. They were masters at God's word, uh, professional theologians. They were law experts. The Christ was promised to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, according to the words of the prophet Micah. I read that already. We find this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But if we compare the quote here from Micah uh, with Matthew's quoting of that passage, we see that there are some differences between those things. Uh, this is because Matthew is translating and also interpreting the passage and not just quoting it. So it's not like Matthew thought he got it right and just missed a few things. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was taking that passage and he's providing more information about that to see uh, what is taking place and to see it fulfilled in Jesus. Micah had wrote that Bethlehem was practically too small to even be counted among the other clans in the tribes of Judah. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It wasn't a significant place. Matthew sees in the fulfillment of this promise a reversal of that. You can see it in the text. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Even though it was a small place, they were by no means least among these rulers or tribes. It may have been insignificant by worldly standards, but not by God's standards, because he was going to use this small and significant place as the fulfillment of his purposes. And it wasn't insignificant because from there, the ruler would come. The ruler of rulers, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who would shepherd God's people Israel. As Micah chapter 5, 4 verse says, this one who would be born would shepherd God's people. 2 Samuel 5 verse 2 also speaks of the, the leaders, the Davidic kings being shepherds of God's people. When we think of those, uh, the, the reality that, that God has spoken, his people are like sheep, 
and sheep need a shepherd, what would be another passage that we would easily go to to think about uh, God being our shepherd or the Lord is my shepherd? What passage would that be? Psalm 23. A number of different passages we speak about God's people needing a shepherd, God being that shepherd, and God providing others to be that shepherd for them as well. Shepherds that often fell short or failed. Moses was a shepherd of God's people. David was a shepherd of God's people. Other kings and priests were shepherds of God's people. The prophets condemned so many of those leaders as shepherds who did not protect the sheep, but used the sheep for their own advantage. Uh, there's one particularly graphic passage, it may actually be in Micah, I just don't remember, uh, where it's talking about them like dissecting and, and carving up the people to eat. Like using the people that they were supposed to be serving in leadership for their own advantage. And all those things, Moses did great until he failed. David did great until he failed. Solomon did great until he failed. The other prophets and priests did great so far as they could. They failed or they died. And so we need somebody else to be God's shepherd for us. And it has to be God himself. So we can see the significance of what it means that this one would be a shepherd how much we need a shepherd that we then see John chapter 10, where Jesus takes this loaded term, this, this title that God's used for himself and God's used for his people, whether good or bad, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And this one who would come from Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They'll know his voice. He'll lay down his life for them. He will lead them. Goodness and mercy will follow them all the days of their life. They will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because the Lord, their shepherd, will lead them there. That's what Jesus does for us. So this promise is a significant one. Herod has the answer to his question. He doesn't care about that shepherd part. Uh, he doesn't care about least which, which clans are important or not important. He just cares, oh, Bethlehem. That's the answer to my question. That is where my rival is. Herod meets with the wise men in secret. Uh, they wanted to know where the king would be born. Herod wanted to know when he had been born. Hardly a harmless request, as we'll see next week. Uh, if you were to watch this scene in a movie, Herod would probably have a very dastardly goatee. And he would have subtle but menacing theme music. And he sends the wise men to Bethlehem, uh, saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Then after they turn to leave, the camera zooms in on him and this maniacal smile spreads across his evil face. Cut scene, right? Matthew chapter two, verse nine. We see the wise men's homage. After listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
The wise men apparently are none the wiser about Herod's true character or motives, and they start on their journey to Bethlehem. That night in the sky, the star that they had been following seems to have reappeared and had moved somehow, not just to bring them to Israel, but to lead them to Bethlehem, where the child Jesus was. I think, once again, this points to the supernatural uh, nature of this star. It rose, it apparently disappeared, it reappeared, and then it moved, all to lead the wise men to a very specific and not very large destination. Verse 10 is wonderful in how it records their response. We see this, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This was not a calm, cool, and collected response. They were ecstatic. The heavens were on their side in this journey, and the star that had led them this far would take them the rest of the way. How does a star point to a particular country or city or house? I have no idea. But God used it to lead them that specifically, because he, God, maker of the stars, had a purpose for these wise men to fulfill in Bethlehem. There is some disagreement uh, as to the timing here. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of disagreement about this passage. A lot of potentials, a lot of, uh, they they have names apparently that no one discovered until centuries or a millennia afterward. That's interesting. Uh, So a lot of fanciful interpretations kind of coming from this passage, but The timing is a little bit interesting. Did this happen soon after Jesus' birth or had some time, even a couple years elapsed before the wise men arrived? Matthew says that Mary and Jesus were in a house, not the stable part of the house that we often think about them in. So it certainly was not the same night that he was born. It's not like shepherds and then shepherds are leaving and the wise men show up. Uh, I think it's likely, although some would disagree, I think Joseph, Mary, and Jesus took up a temporary residence in Bethlehem for a year or so, maybe up to two years, and this is when the wise men came. Uh, So, if your nativity has both shepherds and wise men crowded around baby Jesus in a manger, then you just need to move the wise men out. I recommend at least one room's worth of distance, maybe more, maybe not. Matthew is clear what they did whenever they may have arrived. They entered the house. They saw the child Jesus. They saw Mary, his mother, and then they fell down and they worshiped who? You see it? They fell down and worshiped him. Okay, notice, talked about this a little bit last week. They did not worship Mary. That would have been idolatry. They worshiped the child who was worthy of their worship. Matthew doesn't elaborate on what they knew about Jesus What were they thinking? We don't know. What they knew was a supernatural announcement of his birth by a star. They knew that he was born to be king of the Jews. So not knowing exactly what they knew, kind of hard for us to determine what exactly was their worship, because there needs to be content behind worship. Worship isn't true worship if it's in, in ignorance, right? It's not honoring to God to know little about him. They knew that he was a king. So was this just homage paid to him as as royalty more than full-on worship of him as deity? Because their response would have been fitting for 
emissaries, ambassadors coming from one foreign kingdom to come and prostrate themselves before uh, a new king, maybe seeking his favor for his future rule, one who would be a king so great that the stars would announce his birth, but you don't want to be on the wrong side of that, right? So this could have just been homage paid to, a, to royalty rather than full-on worship of him as deity. And so they knew he was king, but did they really know the full truth that he was Emmanuel, God with us? The text doesn't answer that, but I think what Matthew does, whatever they thought, uh, Matthew portrays this as rich Gentiles coming to worship the king of the Jews. And that's a wonderful theme seen throughout scripture. That the one who was king over the Jews wasn't just king over the Jews. We see a number of passages like this. Passages like Psalm 72, which is often associated with this account. Actually, this is where the king idea, you know, why, okay, if they say wise men, sages, magi, why do people say kings? And really, Psalm 72 is the answer for that. Because they see, it's like, well, where, where else are there prophecies about this? What, what else did God provide information about? And they go to Psalm 72. Solomon prays in regard to God's chosen king. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Sebastian bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And you can see that kind of sounds like what happens in here. Except they, they, Tarshish was in the west. It doesn't work directionally. Um, so this isn't really a prophecy about what happens in Matthew chapter 2. But um, even not as a direct fulfillment, we can see some similarities and perhaps, perhaps we can actually see Matthew 2 not as the fulfillment of Psalm 72, but as a prophetic reminder of that which Psalm 72 points forward to. Kings are going to come and fall down before this child, the Davidic king, God's promised one. So Psalm 72 is pointing forward to an end times fulfillment. All of the nations coming before him, including the kings, bowing before their king. And then Matthew 2 is saying, that's still going to happen. Here's just another taste of it. We talked about Haggai 2. Do you guys remember that? In Haggai 2, it points to that end time reality as well. The glory of Gentile nations will be brought before the Lord in worship. God says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus is not just king of the Jews. He's king of the universe and all peoples. And that psalm that we sang about today talks about that as well, right? Let the nations be glad. Let all the peoples sing. I knew I was going to do that. That's a dangerous spot for that candle. All the peoples of the nations will come and gather together and rejoice in what God has done. The Psalms point to that in a number of places. Other prophetic things talk about that. The New Testament certainly shows aspects of the, the, the fulfillment of those things. You know, with their humble adoration, these wise men, magi, they also present Jesus with lavish gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, frankincense is this odorous, glittering gum obtained by uh, making incisions in the bark of several trees. That's a quote. I, didn't, I don't know that myself. Myrrh is an incense that exudes from another tree found in Arabia, a few other places, a much-valued spice and perfume. It was often used in embalming. And so as people have looked at this, and then gold, obviously just a treasure across cultures. So people have looked at this and been like, ah, here's another prophetic element to this. 
We got Psalm 72 and we have this, like listen to the gospel preached in these gifts. Gold, Jesus is royalty. Incense, that's what's offered to God. Jesus is divinity. Myrrh, embalming, Jesus' passion and burial. And that's really creative and probably not what they were intending. Um, not like that's heresy, because all those things are true. Like Jesus is God worthy of all gold. Jesus, uh, is, you know, Jesus is king worthy of treasures of gold. Jesus is God worthy of offerings like incense rising before him. Jesus did die and was buried and rose again. So uh, embalming spices, like that works, but probably is just asking a little bit too much from the Magi. It may be more likely that these gifts were just expensive uh, and common things that were, were brought as treasures to any type of kings. Uh, and many have seen that it probably helped to finance their trip to Egypt. Uh, they didn't need gold and frankincense and myrrh. Um, in the days and weeks to come, they needed finances to flee to another country with no resources. So it seems likely God was using this to help provide for what we'll talk about next week. But they bring these treasures, lavish gifts that he was worthy of, whether they're symbolic or not, lay them before his feet. And following their joyful, humble worship of Jesus, the wise men leave to return home. Matthew tells us that God warned them through a dream about King Herod's character or purposes or deceitfulness or something so that they should not go back to him and they should not tell him anything about the child. So instead of journeying back through Jerusalem, they go a different way to avoid his attention. Maybe instead of going north to Jerusalem and crossing, maybe they went south and around uh, so that he would not see that. Interesting passage. A lot of historical things we could talk about here, but it kind of begs the question as we come to a sermon about it is what's the point of this passage? Like why spend time talking about it other than it's in scripture and we talk about scripture? Well, there's the fulfillment process of uh, the fulfillment aspect of a prophecy. It was where Jesus was born. That's certainly significant. Let's not allow those things to just pass us by. But why exactly did Matthew include this in his gospel account? He was writing to a mostly Jewish audience. It's often considered uh, a Jewish audience that would have known the prophecy of Malachi. They would have expected the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. And I think if you had asked Matthew's audience prior perhaps to reading this account, if you'd said, you know, who would be the better worshiper? Would it be the chief priests and scribes of Israel? Or would it be pagan astrologers from some Eastern empire? I mean, their answer would have been obvious. I think the answer probably to us would be obvious too. Now, the first group, I mean, the religious leaders of God's people who knew the law, Yet they were the ones who seemed to be disinterested in the prospect of this fulfillment. Instead of a crowd of the holiest, holiest among God's people flocking to Bethlehem to behold the Christ child, the one who was the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, the promised and rightful king of the Jews, their king. Instead of them traveling to Bethlehem, they give the information and kind of return back to their scrolls. And this rightful promised king of the Jews is first acknowledged and worshiped by pagan Gentiles. There's a starkness to this in this passage. Where's he going to be born? Oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know, it's just like, I want to be like, why do you ask? <laughs> Herod, like you've never cared. Why do you care now? 
oh, well, these guys, you know, there's a, they said the star appeared and came. Like, oh, that's interesting. It's like, let's go check this out. They didn't. So sort of ask the question, like, why didn't they care? And I think that's the whole point, that there's a contrast between these two groups of people. I mean, King Herod, nobody thought that he loved God. <laughs> so you can kind of push him to the side. But the other leaders of God's people sort of ignore the potential for this event, whereas the unlikely pagan Gentiles come and worship him. And so for those readers who would have seen clearly if you'd asked them who's the better of these two parties, would have been remarkable to see that the ones that they would have expected failed this test and those that should not have been included passed and went and worshiped. It would have been humbling to them and I hope it's humbling to us as well. Perhaps we need to learn the lesson that knowledge of God's word does not automatically lead us to worship. They knew it better than we know it. And yet it didn't lead them to worship. There's a lesson here for us. I've got two some odd pages of historical uh, aspects of this from Judaism and medieval Catholicism and American Protestantism and fundamentalism and a lot of things because here's the categories. I'll spare you that. We can talk about it later. You don't passionately pursue loving worship of God um, automatically or by default. And our sinful flesh keeps us from that. You coast away. You coast into formalism where you can know all the right answers but miss Jesus. Okay? That's, that's the default. And then through that, then moving into unbelief. Right? And that's what all those different examples that I'll pass over at this point, you can see that in a number of, character, uh, a number of different things into our own country, into the present We face temptations and dangers and there's just category after category of truth wars that God's people have fought and faced and truth has prevailed. God's spirit has worked in his people. Now, Jesus is truly human. Jesus is truly God. This is truly his word. The miracles truly took place and we want to be on the right side of theology, but that is not enough because the priest's Scribes were on the right side of theology and yet they missed the importance of who Jesus is. We face that in our day, a battle against uh, inclusivity, uh, wokeness infiltrating the church. Gotta succumb to the, the, the culture. You gotta succumb to all of these things. You gotta bend. You gotta change what scripture says and we would say no. Right? No, we're not gonna do that. We're going to stay faithful to Scripture. And I believe as a church that we are staying faithful to Scripture. I know that we're committed to doing that. But is that enough for us to be only on the right side of theology? And I submit that it isn't. Okay? Don't hear, oh, so we don't have to be on the right side of theology. Didn't say that. Don't believe that. I'm saying that there's more to walking with God than just being right. So we can mention all those things, not to derail from Matthew 2, but to draw out from Matthew 2 what happens. There's always been, always will be, temptations to draw us toward mere forms of religion. God's work never ceases, but it does often shift away from those who don't really care about it to another group. The priests and the scribes, they weren't interested in the Christ so God called Gentile wise men to come and worship him. Later in the ministry of Jesus, 
Those same priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, they continue to reject Jesus, the forms of religion. So God raised up the apostles to lead or to shepherd his people. They went to the Jews. The Jews rejected the gospel, so the apostles preached to the Gentiles. The Roman Catholic Church abandoned the gospel. We can go through that. Uh, if that. If that raises questions for you, we can talk and demonstrate that from their own writing. That's not just a, a blanket um, insult stead, but, but we can just see differences from God's word. But they abandoned the gospel, so God raised up the reformers. And then among the reformed churches, they saw, as the centuries passed on, that just having confessions and just having catechisms and having right theology was not enough because the people's hearts had grown cold. And so continuing reformation was needed in the hearts of God's people and in his church. European Christianity rejected the gospel, so God blesses the gospel in North America. North America has rejected the gospel as the church grows in Asia and in Africa, and I believe in South America as well, where the center of things shifts when some people who used to accept and glory in Christ and the gospel reject that. God moves his work somewhere else, and what I don't want to have happen at Risen King is for God to leave us because we don't actually care if he's here. That we could be right. Lord, Lord, did we not? Didn't we have everything right? We spoke in your name, used Latin phrases, quoted reformers, preached expositionally. Yeah, but you didn't know me. I don't want that to be said of this, of us, of me. Those who claim to be God's people are either sliding into formalism and toward unbelief, or we are passionately and faithfully pursuing God and his word. So is risen king church more like the priests and the scribes or more like the magi? And the answer does not come down to mere correctness on theological issues, because we can be right and still not love and worship Jesus. What is the love of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength? Right? That's the first and greatest commandment. You would love the Lord your God who is perfectly revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Perhaps this text, text can be a test for us. God's word has revealed the birth of his son to be our king and savior. As clear as a star shining in the evening sky, does seeing and hearing that truth cause you to rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Or is it like, yep, I knew that. And that's not just to you, okay? Like, when I ask those questions, I'm probably asking that question because I, I feel that danger in my own heart. So my fingers aren't, aren't pointed as much as there's a, there's a we that I know that I'm so distractible and even distracted. Like, oh, Christmas, can we just get this done with? Yep, Jesus, God, man, move on. No. Do I rejoice? Jesus is the God-man, Emmanuel, come to be our shepherd and to save us as his people from our sins. Do we willingly and eagerly then fall down and worship him as our Lord and King and God? Is there any aspect of humility to our worship? Or, or are we 
are we offering to God? Uh, is it a gift to him that we're offering? Like he needs us? Or we fall down because we need him, right? Because there can be humility in worship and there can be arrogance in worship. Are you doing God a favor by being here? Or is he shown you a favor in his grace that you come and worship him? What about treasures and riches? Are the riches and treasures of this world things that we hoard, things that we cling to, things that we trust in, or are we offering them to Christ for the work of his glorious kingdom? And that's not just offerings, okay? That's everything. I don't remember who I was talking to um, this week. It just uh, reminded me, you know, you either own what you have or you're stewarding what God has given you. So which is it? And it's not just 10% his, 100% his, okay? So Christmas, presents, right? Bills, end of year. Is it all Jesus's or is it, is it yours? You know, in his life and his death, Jesus, this child who is worshiped, this king, this shepherd, he fully paid the price for all of our sins including the sin of misplaced priorities and half-hearted worship. Jesus said that the one who knows they have been forgiven much is the one who will love much. So do we love much? Or do we love little? And that really comes down to a perspective on who we are and who he is and how much we need him. Do we adore our king as we're about to sing? Let's come adore the humble king as a song that we're gonna respond in faith to this passage. Uh, the wise men came from a great distance to come and adore this humble king. Will we do the same? So I, I pray, may the Holy Spirit help us to passionately love the one who has so graciously loved us like the wise men. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we marvel at, at your creative power. Uh, whatever that star was, you put it there for a purpose of drawing these Gentiles to come and worship your son and he was worthy of their worship and he's worthy of our worship. Forgive us for idolatry of misplaced priorities and half-hearted worship. Please give us joy that Jesus has come. Give us the humility to fall before him in worship. Um, it cause us to, to rejoice in participating in his kingdom with the things that you've given to us. Uh, so may your will be done and may your son be glorified. Amen.